Hi there and welcome to Crime Time Inc. My name is Simon McLean. I'm a former murder squad detective here in Glasgow and in the west of Scotland, as well as having worked nationwide undercover and in surveillance operations for many years. Here is my partner in crime, Time Inc, Tom Wood, retired Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police. But a warning, you might struggle with this accent. <laughs> good day, everybody. Good day. My name's Tom, and I spent a long career in policing in the more genteel part of Scotland, the East Coast, near Edinburgh. I spent much of my early and middle years as a detective working on serious crime. Later, as a senior officer, I was involved in running big operations and major public order events. Simon and I are both writers, and we share an interest in true crime and what goes on behind the scenes. There'll be very few people with our insights and detailed knowledge. Tom, before we launch into this week's exciting episode, and really the bit I've been looking forward to, the court case, etc., let me just recap a wee bit from last week, just to clarify something with you. I'm thinking about the arrest itself. If we could just have a wee think about that, you and I both being retired police officers. This is a policeman's daughter, a serving police officer's daughter. Not only that, but he's the guy who's there when the van is stopped. He's with the witness who identifies the van and they stop it in the middle of the village. And he's the guy, along with his, his colleague, who finds his own daughter concealed and bound in the rear of this van. How on earth did this guy deal with it professionally, or did he? I've been asked this question several times, um, Simon, not least by uh, some FBI agents who I, I told the story to, and they couldn't believe the story. And the bit they couldn't believe was the fact that the policeman hadn't killed Black on the spot. And the answer is shock. The answer is that he was so shocked and so relieved to see his girl alive that the moment passed. And it was only a few moments after that that the anger started to come. But, of course, by that time, the reinforcements had arrived and Black was safely in custody. It's very hard, unless you've been in that position, to know what your response would be. But his response was just absolute shock and relief. And his only, his only concern, only concern, was to make sure that his daughter was alive. By the time that had passed and the penny had dropped, then comes the rage. But thankfully, by that time, other people were there and protected them, protected the policeman, I mean, from his own natural reactions. It could have done some damage to the case at that point as well. Well, precisely. I mean, you and I both know that it's never, I mean, it may seem like a good idea at the time, not as physical response, but it, it's never the answer long term. And as we know, it often jeopardises cases. I think it was drummed into at very early stages in their career, Tom, because We've arrested so many horrible people, you know, with domestic abuses, some of them are horrific, in cases of incest, child abuse, murder, obviously, and some very, very serious and violent men who've done vile things. You don't want to jeopardise the case, and especially once the cuffs are on him. Once he's cuffed and bound and detained, policemen get very emotional as well. But it's, I think it's a credit to us and to the force and to policemen the world over that there's not more uh, unrestrained violence involved in some of the people we have to deal with. I think there's a big difference between what you think you'll do and what you will do in that circumstance. I have to say that most of the murderers that I've met, and I've met a few, 
were actually pathetic characters by the time I've met them because they're in police custody. And so you may feel as if, you know, you wish to be angry at them, but a lot of them are, are literally so pathetic that it's, it's difficult to feel anything at all. I always found that uh, with domestic abuse as well, Tom. I know we're off the track here, but men who lifted their hands to their, to their female partners, as it was, were generally cowards. They were generally horrible people who would cower when the police did uh, physically arrest them. Just a general observation there, not a scientific one, I don't think. Yeah, I know. Well, that's right. I mean, it's about situational responses, and some people are fearsome. The exception to that is people who are drunk or who are fighting mad. And latterly, of course, even in my service, and a lot more now, police officers and ambulance staff are having to deal with people who are suffering the effects of drug use and who are fighting mad. And they're extremely difficult to deal with because, of course, they're utterly unreasonable in the truest sense of the word. They cannot be reasoned with. And they also have the most enormous strength. It's almost a cliche to talk about people with the strength of 10 men. But I've, I've met some of these people who, who literally seem to have that. And that's very, very difficult of how to restrain them without injuring themselves or without injuring the officers. Extremely difficult. Tom, have you any knowledge, up-to-date knowledge or more recent knowledge of, of that wee girl who was 10 then? And there's obviously a grown woman probably with her own family now, and that police officer who'll be retired, I take it now. Yes, he is. The wee girl is completely recovered. The family decided, interestingly, after the event, not to make a big deal of it. A lovely, very, very ordinary borders couple, uh, mum and dad, and they decided they would just play it very calmly and not make a big deal of it. The wee girl, the last time I heard, had made a, a complete recovery. It's a remarkable story, and I've told the story to other officers, including FBI agents, and they think it's a fiction. They think I'm kidding them on when I tell them the circumstances of the arrest. The father of the wee girl, plus his mate, in the little panda car, in this little patrol car, made their way the eight miles from where they were to the village of Stown. I've often thought, what was in the mind of that man as he drove that eight miles down tiny little tortuous roads when he couldn't go all that fast? It must have seemed like, like an eternity until he actually got to the village of Stown. And I've often paused to think about that. And in fact, I spoke to him about it later. And he, he said he has no memory at all of that drive. Tom, I can see why why anybody would think that was uh, made up, you know, fictional. And you and I have spoke many times about how the truth is often stranger than fiction, as we say. But but we forget that eight miles must have taken at least 10 minutes because he couldn't do 60. He couldn't do 60 on those roads, as I know. So at least 10 minutes, maybe 12 minutes to get there. And in that time, Black could have been, because he could go much faster, he could have been 10 miles up the road. One of the things we didn't know right from the start, we knew where the abductions were and we knew where the depositions were. But what we didn't know was, was this someone based in Scotland dumping the bodies in a place where he would, where he would draw attention away from himself as, as a kind of diversion? Or was this somebody travelling north, abducting the children and then making his way back to his lair in a place of safety? Now, we thought it was more likely to be the latter. But I remember Hector Clark saying at the briefings, let's not make dangerous assumptions. We don't know. We don't know. And there was also the issue around the, the abduction side because we knew 
that uh, Susan Maxwell had been walking on the southbound side of the road. So it would have been easier for a vehicle coming southbound to pick her up rather than a vehicle coming northbound, which would have had to do a U-turn. It was only with the arrest of Black and the Stow incident that we saw the pattern of his behaviour. He was travelling north when he abducted her and he came back down south, obviously returning to his lair and the site of the deposition of the three girls, of Susan, of Caroline and Sarah. That's what he was doing. Of course, because the roads there are not many roads going north or south, he, he came back down the same way as he had gone up. So, Tom, we've now got uh, this beast, Robert Black, in custody. Tell us a bit about him, what we discovered about him, because that's a big part of the inquiry at this stage. It turns out his lair was much further south than any of the girls had been found. We have to be interviewed, we have to start learning about Robert Black because we know nothing about him at this point. What do we learn about Black? Who is he? Well, that's right. The first thing you do in these cases is you build up as comprehensive an antecedent history as you can about Robert Black. And we knew nothing about Robert Black at the time he was arrested. Robert Black was born in 1947. He was born in Grangemouth in Scotland, which is not too far from, from Edinburgh. And he had a, well, to summarise, he had an incredibly difficult childhood. He was in care. His much-loved foster mother died when he was young. He had a very, very troubled childhood. And he ended up in a home down in Musselburgh where he was in the care of a charity there. And there were signs there that he was seriously disturbed. He was charged with various uh, sexual offences. It's fine to say that in hindsight, once you've caught him. But of course, there were no convictions for serious crimes uh, that were on, a, an ad, on an adult record. It was all juvenile convictions. But he was actually based in North London. He lived in a, a, a squat. It was a, a, a filthy hovel of a, a flat which was full to the brim with stuff, rubbish and, and just the detritus of life, including a huge collection of pornography, much of it very graphic child pornography, and also dozens and dozens and dozens of items of children's clothing, for which he could give no account. He didn't have any young children, relatives or family or anything like that. He, he wasn't married. He, he had no successful adult relationships. He was a real loner and a real oddball. And he was a man who accumulated rubbish. And interestingly, he never threw anything out. So, for instance, uh, if he'd bought a hamburger uh, on the motorway six months earlier, the receipt would be somewhere in his flat. Uh, and, of course, later, as the investigation proceeded, these things were to become crucial evidence. Did he ever give any explanation? I've interviewed so many people in Oversight. He must have been interviewed... Uh, by the very best that we had. And sometimes you can get them to start boasting or, or even denying, which is great. If you can get them angry enough to deny things, then that gives nice clues. Was he in any way responsive? Because the worst type are the people that say nothing. Yeah, no, he wasn't that. He was a talker. And the people that interviewed him were, as you, were, as you say, very skilled and very talented. And he was a talker. And he spoke candidly about his obsession with young children, his fixation, his sexual interest in young children and how he would watch young children, and how he would gather pornography, and how he would take clothes, and how he was deeply ashamed of himself for all of this. 
But the minute you got him to a point to talk about the abductions and the murders, it was like he was an old CD that was on skip. He would go back to the track before and he'd start talking about how he's obsessed with uh, collecting pornography, etc., etc. So he would go so far and no further. And regardless of how many times he was interviewed and in what form he was interviewed, by male and female teams, by young officers, old officers, and we took, of course, a lot of um, psychologist advice on the interviews. He was candid in his admission that he had this thing about young children, that he had a sexual interest in young children, that he collected child pornography, that he collected children's clothing, that he used these while he was masturbating, and all of this stuff. But the minute you got him to the scene of one of the abductions of one of the girls, it was like he was on a skip track on the old CDs, you know, when it, when it got to the thing and it went back to the track before. It was just like that. And that was him. He was a talker and he gave some things away, but he would never admit, right to the end, he would never admit, perhaps because he couldn't admit to himself the crimes he had committed. He did hark back to his own abuse. Yes, he's, he, he spoke about that. Well, there were clues within the records of the homes he was in. But certainly, when he was a child, he was displaying behaviours which certainly indicated that he had been sexually abused. Um, there's no question about that. And he was candid in talking about that. As I say, he was a talker, and he quite liked to chat so far, but no further. There was a very difficult decision to be made because, of course, straight away, obviously, had we been able to libel and bring to court all these cases together, it would have been much preferable because we would have had the irrefutable evidence of the abduction in Stow together with the other three cases. But time did not allow that. Once he was in custody, we had 110 days. And so a decision was made that he would appear at court for the abduction alone and that further inquiries would have to be made into the three abductions of the murders. And that was a that was a crucial decision. I think in hindsight it was the right decision, but I remember at the time it being taken and it was very, very difficult because in the abduction at Stow, you had the winning cards in your hand and you were going to play them on one case and not keep them as evidence in the other cases. Of course, in Scotland, we do not have evidence of similar facts, so we could not produce in evidence for the abductions and murders any of the evidence that was available for the abduction of the girl in Stow. That's in Scotland, that is. It's different in England. Okay, so we've now got uh, to prepare a separate case for these other three murders. Were you involved in that firstly, Tom, were you, or were you long gone by now? I was working in another part of the force, but, but Hector Clark, one of his great attributes was that he was a good picker of people. He, he picked good people and then he put his trust in them. And uh, for the second half, I always look at this investigation as being in two halves, before Black's arrest and after Black's arrest. And for the second half of Black's arrest, he, he picked a, a young detective inspector who was coming up through the CID at that time, a man called Roger Orr, who would later become head of CID in Lothian and Borders. And he was absolutely the right choice because thoroughly professional and fastidious, absolutely fastidious. And if anybody was going to be picked to go through 
tons of evidence and pick out the strands to pursue, it would be Roger Orr. And so Hector Clark, again, a good picker of people, and he picked the right people, and he picked the right man in Roger Orr. I can imagine the job that he had involved in, because I had a case once where we had the tackle graph. We knew where the truck for the robbery had been stolen, and we obviously knew where it had been recovered. And we had the tachograph that told us every gear change and every speed and everything that the, the, the truck had done for that overnight that it had been missing. And the task then, uh, it seems trivial compared with what uh, Roger's task was to look back over a 10-year period and how lucky we were that Black was a hoarder. He had thousands of pieces of information. I take it all of that was brought back up to Edinburgh. Yes, the whole contents of his house were brought up and we had a big sort of a, it was actually designed as a games hall in our police headquarters and it was all brought up there and of course held under very, very secure circumstances. But I mean, it, it literally filled the whole hall. Every fragment of paper, every piece of clothing, because of course all the children's clothing, what we were hoping for was that one of these pieces of clothing would belong to one of the girls. It didn't, but that's what we were hoping for. So it was like putting together, it was like putting together a massive jigsaw, and it was all laid out on the floor on brown paper for preservation. And of course, it was forensically examined, each piece meticulously forensically examined, and then it was examined for where it fitted into the picture. Was it a piece of a jigsaw, and what else was connecting it to another piece? And so you had him as a hoarder of documents. And you also had his employers, who were also an old-fashioned kind of transport company who mainly delivered posters, posters for cinemas and theatres and shows and like that. But they were also meticulous keepers of records, particularly petrol receipts. And they didn't just keep them for a year, they kept them for 20 years. So that was all seized as well. So we had this massive, huge quantity of material, all that had to be matched if possible. I'm having nightmares here because I'm thinking back how many times we did it. When you look at those receipts and get them into some kind of chronological order, and then you look for the dates, the pertinent dates that we know about when the abductions took place, etc., and the geography of being in Scotland and being down south. And your heart's in your mouth as you do that because you know that if you find a receipt that doesn't fit, that it could throw the whole thing into jeopardy. It could throw the whole inquiry into jeopardy. So it must have been a very fraught job to do that. It was not only fraught, but of course it took ages. To one extent, it didn't matter because Black was in custody, so he was safe. From that point of view, at least he wasn't ranging about the country committing other offences. But it was a long, long, tedious job. And of course, as we discussed before with the old card index system, one slip up and and the whole thing is nullified. What Roger Orr did under Hector Clark, what he sought to do was eliminate Robert Black from these crime scenes. In other words, prove by receipts that he wasn't there. And once they couldn't do that, then he tried to prove that, in fact, he was there. I remember Hector Clark telling me, he said, I want to prove that it couldn't have been anyone else. I want to eliminate everything so that it could not have been anyone else. And I want a jury to hear the evidence and believe that it could not have been anyone else. And of course, that's, in essence, that's the, 
the definition of circumstantial evidence. It's uh, too, I mean, it was an old judge back in the 19th century described it as being like a, a fine mesh net, which is so and so tight as that there is no escape. None of the strands of the net are strong enough in themselves, but taken together, uh, and I think if, if you think about circumstantial evidence and think about a net, I think that's a very good way of illustrating exactly what it is. And if there's a weakness, then the structure of the whole thing falls apart. It's just like silken threads, which combined are enormously powerful. And also the, the what you mentioned there was the trace and eliminate. It's the, the old action that every detective got on a major inquiry was to trace, interview and eliminate. So we're at the trial. Uh, 1994, is that right, when Black's trial for the further three murders took place? There was a lot happened in between that time because the Crown Office in Scotland took cold feet. We built up a very, very compelling circumstantial case and presented to the Crown, and the Crown were doubtful that there was a sufficiency of evidence to prosecute in Scotland because, of course, they could not produce any of the evidence that came from the abduction in Stout. However, luckily for us, there was also, of course, an English element. Not only did we have the abduction and murder of Sarah Harper in England, but we also had the deposition of the body of both Caroline Hogg and Susan Maxwell in England. So the Director of Public Prosecutions also had a stake in the game. And when we went to the Director of Public Prosecutions and laid the case before him, I remember uh, speaking to Hector and Roger about it, and they took months and months and months and months, and they heard nothing. And you know what it's like? You've been there. You prepare a case fastidiously, and it's your baby, and you hand it over to the fiscal or the DPP, and they take it, and it's gone. And you're left thinking, I wonder did they get the point? I wonder did they pick that nuance up? I wonder, are they taking it as importantly as we were? And it's very much like giving your baby away. You, know? <laughs> you wonder whether they're going to take it seriously. Uh, however, after about whoa, six or seven months, Ed Clark got a call from the Director of Public Prosecution and said, yep, we're going to go with this. We're going to go with this. And, and they did. In 1994, uh, Robert Black appeared at Newcastle Assizes. Now, it's interesting that that was, of course, the home turf of Hector Clark. He'd been born and raised there. He'd appeared in the High Court in Newcastle many, many times as a working detective. And here he was, right at the very end of his service, back in the High Court in Newcastle with Robert Black, charged with the, the abduction and murder and a whole lot of other offences as well. It was a very, very tense affair. Very tense. Tom, I don't know about you, but a question I get asked regularly, especially back in the day, was how can anyone defend a guy like that? How can they take on the job of defence solicitor? And I tell them a story about when I was at uh, detective training at Tully Allen Police College, uh, because there was 22 of us and we would have asked the same question at that time, to be perfectly honest, because we were very single-minded in our outlook. But I always remember Len Murray, the solicitor, came to speak to us. So I'm going to ask you to do a an unusual thing here, and uh, and give the perspective from because because he, he had a defence team like everybody else has to have. And what would your answer be to that question when you're asked it by friends and family? The role of the defence is quite simple, and that is to 
provide the best defense for their client, okay? So to represent them to the utmost of their abilities, not to assume guilt or innocence, and a lot of the best defense lawyers and QCs I know, the one question they never ask their client is whether you're guilty or not. They never ask that. They are not there to judge on guilt or innocence. What they are there to do is to provide the best case for the defense. And, and that's their duty under the law. And actually, when you think about it, and as you're right, as young policemen, you say, oh, that's ridiculous and blah, blah, blah. But you know, Simon, you never know the day when you might need that yourself. <laughs> you know me too well, Tom. <laughs> I always remember the famous quote from Thomas More, you know, the great Thomas More executed, hounded and executed by Henry VIII. They were talking about defences under the law. And he said, the defence is like a forest full of trees. If you cut down the trees, what are you going to hide when the devil comes after you? And Len Murray's take on it, if I remember it correctly, because it stuck with me because it's important. For an hour or so that he spoke, and maybe longer, but the gist of it really was that his job was to test the evidence, to make sure that we had done our jobs because that evidence had to be corroborated, it had to be collected properly, preserved properly, presented properly to the court, and it had to be tested. The veracity of the police evidence and Crown evidence had to be tested. It's the only way we could safely convict someone. So he wasn't there to defend anyone. He was there to test the Crown case. It is the Crown's responsibility to prove beyond all reasonable doubt. It is not the defence's responsibility to disprove. It's the Crown's, the onus is on the Crown to prove beyond all reasonable doubt. I think you've got to reassure yourself that if you were in the dock yourself, you would wish that same degree of rigour. Certain sheriffs over the years, Evan Smith always pops into my head because I worked in the Isle of Butte and he was the sheriff on the Isle of Butte, so I knew him very, very well. And Irvin used to uh, be renowned as being very pro-police and his sentencing was harsh. His sense of timing and comic timing in court was second to none. But I know from personal experience that nobody tested the police evidence more thoroughly than Irvin Smith. And he got very, very angry if the police hadn't done their job properly. I remember him coming back from Fars Lane when the cases were on for the Greenpeace movement down in, in Fars Lane and storming into his office past the Fiscal Act. And it transpired that he'd had to abandon a case halfway through because the cops hadn't given their evidence properly. And this enraged him, enraged him, because he tested the police evidence to the full. I remember when I was a very young detective, uh, I wrote this report about this, this known thief and it was all the stuff about how there were a number of offences had been committed. I got a nice note back from the procurator fiscal. He's a lovely, lovely man. Went on to be a very distinguished sheriff. And he said, Dear Detective Sergeant, thank you very much for this compelling note. Now, could you provide the evidence? <laughs> <laughs> Just a minor, minor blip. <laughs> no, no, I mean, and actually, you know what? He was dead right. He was dead right. <laughs> and instead of phoning me up and carpeting me, and there was a very, 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 very polite but very direct reminder, show me the evidence. Let's go back to Mr Black and his trial in 1994 and the meticulous work. I mean, we're talking three years of work here to piece this case, and eventually it has to be heard down south in Newcastle. That's right. It has to be heard down south under the English system. 
which of course we weren't familiar with. Hector Clark was familiar with, we weren't familiar with. And there was a lot of coming and going over who would present the case and there was changes at the last minute and then somebody in the defence dropped out. Let me ask you a question, Tom, that you'll have some insight because you've got insight to this case that's unique. If that case had been tried, if the if the fiscal service Crown in Scotland had decided to prosecute him up here, do you think we'd have got the same result? I think it would have been very difficult because in England we could present the evidence of similar fact. And in fact, Black's lawyer tried a, a very interesting but very risky gambit in that he actually led the evidence of Black's background and his previous conviction. The essence of his case was, my client has a sexual obsession with children and he collects pornography and he has tried to abduct this child in Stow and this is terrible, but it doesn't make him a murderer. That was quite clever, wasn't it? Because he must have known that the jury knew who Black was anyway. Well, it wasn't that, but you see, the Crown were going to introduce the evidence of similar fact. What the Crown were going to do was to say, here we have a set of circumstances that happened in Coldstream and happened in Portobello a year later and happened just outside Leeds in 1986. And here is a set of circumstances in 1990 for which Robert Black was arrested. And by the way, they're all identical. I mean, that was going to be the Crown's case. And what the defence tried to do was to steal the prosecution's thunder by coming out and saying, look, this guy's not perfect. He's a reprehensible character, but that doesn't make him a murderer. And you have got to be sure beyond all reasonable doubt that he is a murderer and not just a sexual pervert. It was high risk, but it was a very, very interesting approach to take. And obviously, I think there was 10 charges or 12 charges against him. Each one depended on the next, didn't it? You had to get that first conviction from the jury, from the foreman, had to give you a guilty to start it off. If they'd found the first one, any doubt about it, then all the rest would have had a doubt about them by definition, really. That comes back to the old tenant of the circumstantial case, of this fine mesh net. If one strand of the net is found to be weak, then all the rest are too. And I mean, it was very, very clear that if the first one was proved guilty, all the rest would follow, and vice versa. If there was a not guilty, then all the rest would be not guilty. So we should finish that off by reassuring everyone that he was found guilty on all charges by the jury. It was an incredibly long trial. It was a very complex trial. The judge himself played a, a major part in trying to steer the jury through, making sure that the jury heard all the evidence. Because, of course, another very legitimate defence ploy is to try to prevent, by legal argument, some of the evidence not to be presented. But the judge made sure that was not the case. I used to have a ploy in court, Tom, that uh, was passed on to me, and I've passed it on to many colleagues ever since, that in the witness box, because fraud trials were famous for this and probably still are. The defence can make things so boring, so laborious, so detailed, that the jury are almost disinterested in listening to it all. And they lose the thread of the thing during the course of the trial. And that's the defence's job to some degree as well, as while he's testing the evidence, is to do it properly. So I used to have a ploy that I would speak to the Crown, I'd speak to the fiscal uh, or the advocate that was questioning me, examining me. And then when the defence stood up to cross-examine me, I would turn and face the sheriff or the judge or the jury. 
and I would give my answers. I would listen, but I wouldn't look at them. And then I would give my answers to the jury or to the sheriff. And I mentioned Irvin Smith earlier. Where it came in useful on two or three occasions, maybe more than that. I remember once in the High Court when it was complicated. The defence had done his job. I'd been in the box for, it was my second day in the box. And the defence uh, advocate had done his job perfectly. And I knew that we were losing the set. But because I was speaking to the sheriff and the jury, the judge stopped me. He stopped me from answering. And he answered for me. And he said, is it the case, officer? He summarised my evidence. And everybody nodded. And I nodded. And everybody got it. And I thought that was priceless. Priceless. And the defence was, ah, dragged at that point. But you see, the thing is, Simon, that you and I were lucky in a way in that at the time we were young officers, we were called to court a lot. Yeah. Whereas now, when you speak to young officers now, that because of all the, the administrative systems and the deals and everything else, actually, officers can go four or five years service without actually appearing in court. Appearing in court is a bit like attending your first post-mortem. Once you've done it once, it's easier the next time. But as you go on and as you get more experience, you develop these kind of crafts, which you've just described. I think the other issue round about that trial in 1994 the judge was a man called William McPherson, Lord William McPherson, Justice William McPherson. And William McPherson was a Scottish aristocrat, McPherson of Clooney. Lord McPherson, of course, was, was famous as the judge in the Stephen Lawrence investigation. This was the famous investigation in 1993 into the murder of the black teenager Stephen Lawrence. And it was McPherson who put the label of institutionally racist on the Metropolitan Police, a label which they've never shaken to this day. But for the Robert Black case, McPherson was perfect. He was an inspired choice because he had knowledge of both the Scottish and the English legal systems. And so he could not be bamboozled by legal argument from either side of the border. And he made sure that the jury got a chance to hear the evidence, that no evidence was ruled out, including evidence of similar fact. That's to say that the evidence regarding the abduction in Stow, of the wee girl in Stow on the A7, was led in the case against Robert Black for the murder of our three girls. And that was something that was allowed within the English system, but would not have been allowed within the Scottish system. So Macpherson was a brilliant judge because he managed somehow to get through all the legal argument, which was considerable, and allow the jury to hear the case. And when they heard the case, they had no hesitation in convicting Robert Black of the three murders of our girls. So, Tom, let's be clear here. Would he have been convicted in a Scottish court, in the High Court in Edinburgh, uh, of the three murders? He would never have been tried. So, I mean, he would never have been tried. He wouldn't have got to the High Court. The Crown Office made it very clear that they believed there was insufficient evidence. He would have escaped justice for the murder of Caroline Hogg and Susan Maxwell in Scotland. He might thereafter have been taken down to appear in the case of, of Sarah Harper. But these cases hung together because of all the similar uh, circumstances and particularly because of the identical circumstances of the abduction of the wee girl in Stow. So the answer's no. I'm sorry, but he would not have been. So on that, Tom, 
Black's in custody, he's going nowhere, he's never going to be released, and so he's not a danger anymore. People often ask about the the rationale of then spending all this public money and all the inquiries, etc., etc., into historic crimes uh, to convict him of other crimes when he's already incarcerated. What's your take on that, Tom? Well, he would have been serving a life sentence for the abduction in Stow, but we would never have got um, we would never have got satisfaction. So, Tom, how important do you think it is that families can get closure uh, and get some satisfaction in knowing that the inquiry has been completed to its conclusion? It, it's hugely important because it, it closes a chapter. The one that strikes me most because I knew him best was Maureen Scott, who was the father of Helen Scott, who was one of the World's End murder victims. And he said that it was unfinished business for him and he could not rest. He felt they had a duty to see justice done for his daughter. He knew it wouldn't make any difference. He knew it wouldn't bring her back. He knew it wouldn't bring his wife back who died of a broken heart. He knew that all that damage would not be repaired. It could never be repaired. At least it was something. At least it was to see justice done. And that's, that's hugely important. It may be symbolic, but sometimes uh, symbolism is very, very powerful. Next time on Crime Time Inc. It was a long time after he'd been convicted. Um, he had aged considerably, um, being in prison, and also he had nothing to lose, really, because he knew that he wasn't going to get out of prison. Um, so there was an element of, well, what's he got to lose? Why don't we play on his, his better side? Of course, that was, um, that was a mistake, because he didn't have a better side. Um, and he still did not confess to anything, but he did try to play games with the with the Irish detectives and to, to watch the interview and to, to hear the interviews fascinating because what he did was he said, oh, well, you know, I've got some interesting children and I sometimes have these fantasies. And he then went on to describe a fantasy which in actual fact was the exact replica of the abduction and murder of Jennifer Gardy.